Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, whether you have a printed copy, as I prefer, that you bring to church, or you have a device with an app on it, I want you to find the book of 1 Corinthians. And when you find the book of 1 Corinthians, if you would, turn with me to the fourth chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. For those of you who are guests of ours, we're in a sermon series through the book of 1 Corinthians, simply entitled, Follow the Leader. The Apostle Paul had encountered a problem. He planted the church in Corinth and left there, and after he left, some immature, arrogant leaders rose to prominence and led the church astray. And the church was beginning to be divided, and the root cause of it was spiritual pride. People were dividing themselves over a superiority complex. Some were saying, you need to listen to this teacher. Others were saying, no, if you don't listen to that teacher. Others were touting some deeper wisdom beyond what was written in Scripture. And people were beginning to lose sight of the gospel. And so, beginning in chapter 3, we started walking through what it really looks like to follow the leader. The leader is Christ. But how do you follow leaders and follow the leader? How do you discern the right type of spiritual leadership in your life? And then how do you exhibit spiritual leadership in the lives of others that God would afford you the opportunity to have influence over? And we come today to the second to last sermon. I'll complete this series next week. And today begins the summation of Paul's main point. This is really a discussion between the comparison and the contrast of spiritual pride versus spiritual power. Now, none of us like spiritual pride. In, in other words, we don't want to be, nor do we want to be under, and certainly we, won't, we don't want to be around people who have an arrogance about their own spiritual life, their standing before God, or what they may or may not have to offer us. Now, you don't need to turn there this morning, but just, if you will, listen to Jesus and what he said to the disciples in Luke chapter 18, where he shared a story perfectly exemplifying spiritual pride and humility. Luke chapter 18, the Bible reads these words. He also said to, his, to this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one Pharisee and the other a tax collector. That's important. The Pharisees were seen as the most righteous, the most pious, uh, the most zealous for God. Tax collectors were hated and despised by their own people. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, quotation mark, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes for all that I get. So the Pharisee just basically prayed, God, thank you for making me so awesome. The Pharisee, or excuse me, the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Close quotation mark. Jesus says, I tell you this, man went down to his house justified 
rather than the other. And here's why. Listen to words of Jesus. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. None of you came to church this morning desiring to be spiritually arrogant. None of you watching online today would say, you know what, I I sort of like the Pharisee in that parable. I kind of like being that person. So how does it happen? I mean, we have no reason to believe that the Corinthian believers were any different than you or I. How do we grow arrogant in our spirituality? And how does this spiritual pride rob us of real spiritual power? I mean, Jesus promised. He said, if you humble yourself, I'll exalt you. I'll clothe you in power. I'll use your life. Your life will bring great glory and honor to me. You'll be effective. Your prayers will be powerful. Your ministry will be momentous. So if you humble yourself, I will unlock power in your life that is not of your own. It is supernatural. It is of divine origin. It is the power of Christ through you. I just don't know of a church attender, especially on Memorial Day weekend, who doesn't want that spiritual power in their life. I think it's important to understand how spiritual pride and spiritual power differ because the way to not learn is to go, oh, yeah, I got that one. That's like lesson 101. I'm good, pastor. I know I'm a sinner. I I will never struggle with spiritual pride. I just showed you the first statement of spiritual pride. When you declare yourself immune from something, you're actually sick with it. Spiritual pride finds its root in self. In fact, listen to what Paul says in our passage today, beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. And I'm going to preach this morning very quickly down through verse 12 or 13 or 14 or 11 or wherever I want to stop. Verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it already? And this is... Paul being irony-laced, he's being cynical. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Verse 9, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. And then Paul provides the difference between his life and the life of these puffed-up Corinthians. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. So what is the difference, church family, between spiritual pride and spiritual power. Let's take them apart, put them back together, and make some application to our lives. Spiritual pride is rooted in self. It's self first. In fact, it's not just self first, it's self over. I was having a discussion with someone the other day, sharing my faith with them and trying to 
share with them the difference between cognitively acknowledging Jesus as a historical figure, even a miraculous figure, even the divine Son of God, and confessing Him as Lord of your life. So, So true saving faith is not believing that Jesus existed. Satan certainly believes Jesus existed and does exist. Saving faith is saying not only do I believe who you say you are, I believe you are who you say you are, and therefore I resign my will to yours. I hand you my life that you so graciously gave me that sin took from you. I hand my life back to you. I offer myself, Paul would say, as a living sacrifice. You now take up your agenda in me. In fact, when Christians struggle, when we stray from God's will, as I certainly do and you do, when we struggle, when we stray from God's will, when we sin, that is a momentary lapse in the lordship attitude that we should have. In other words, in that moment of sin, whether it be a a fit of anger, a coarse word, a lustful thought, a, 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 a seed of bitterness, whatever it is, in that moment when we succumb to it, when we give into it, we're taking back the reins of our life. We're saying, I want what I want. I want to say what I want to say. I want to think what I want to think. I want to have what I want to have. And you can't stop me. And often the Lord does not stop us in those moments. He allows us a measure of space to stumble and to fall. And then if we are truly born again, followed by that rebellion, that sin, are those waves of deep heartfelt conviction, which is the Holy Spirit saying, that's not who I've called you. That's not what I've declared you to be. You're acting against the new heart that I gave you. And the testimony of the validity of someone's faith is in the presence of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. In fact, someone can't be saved until they feel the weight of their sin. Do they feel convicted of their need for salvation? The Scripture makes this crystal clear. And so the root of pride, whether it be in the unsaved person who by pride will not give their life to Christ, or it be in the saved person who has experienced his love and grace and moves away and forgets it and begins to place themselves over his lordship, is seen in this passage in at least three ways. First, you place self over Scripture. Look what Paul says in verse 6. He says these words, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos. Now, for those of you who may be new to the series this morning, they're all available online. You you can watch them. You can catch up. We encourage you to do that. But, but, But Paul has been camping on the fact that he and Apollos and other teachers have been points of contention, not by their own volition, but people were saying, oh, I follow Paul. I'm better than you. Some were saying, no, 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 I follow Apollos, I'm better than you. So Paul has not mince words. He's used his name and Apollos' name over and over through chapter 3 and through chapter 4. A quick reading of those chapters later today will show you that. And so Paul then says, I've applied this to me. I've applied this to Apollos. But it's not because I'm preaching to myself or Apollos. We didn't cause the problem. Your pride caused the problem, which is why he says in the second phrase of verse 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. Paul said, I'm trying to help you. And how does that work? Look at it. Brothers, for your benefit, he would say, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. In other words, Paul is saying you're trumped up categories of spiritual superiority, they aren't in Scripture. 
They're not written in Scripture. There's no scriptural basis. In fact, a survey of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation will reveal that God not only teaches against pride, he hates pride. He hates pride. Now, he certainly doesn't hate people, and we're thankful for his love for us, but he hates what pride does to creation and what it does to people. And so there is no scriptural mandate to develop a superiority complex about one's spirituality. You're going beyond what is written. There's another issue here we don't even have time this morning to really unpack. But one of the infatuations with the Corinthian believers was wisdom. Now, again, if you allow me to define wisdom biblically as from the Lord, it's a great thing. Go get it. The Bible celebrates it. But what they were talking about is deeper, mysterious wisdom of the spiritually elite, which is basically just hogwash. It's just made up. And yet what you find, I even see modern-day ministries building themselves around particular personalities who seem to have wisdom keys and insights no one else has. They always surround themselves with a cheering section, and everything they say, people hang on every word. In fact, most of their ministries tweet more of their own quotes than they do the Word of God. And they build this mirage of insight and wisdom that you can only get from them, from their resource, from their books, or from subscribing to their daily podcast. And Paul would say, anybody in any spiritual leadership that goes beyond anything that has been written in Scripture is preaching pride, self over Scripture. Now, let me apply this to you because many of you would say, well, that's a great word for ministers or pastors or preachers. How does this apply to my life? One simple application. A great way to guard yourself from spiritual pride is to pour all of your emotions and thoughts through the truth of the Word of God. Your emotions are not in and of themselves sinful. You cannot change how things make you feel instantly. You don't have the ability to rule your heart that way. In fact, the psalm I read at the beginning of the service shows a psalmist who is completely and totally broken before God. He does not spew bitterness toward God, but he does not hold back his distraught, feeling of isolation before the Lord. It is not a sinful thing to feel. It becomes sinful when our feelings begin to guide our behaviors, our convictions, and our beliefs, especially when our feelings contradict the Word of God, and they often can. In fact, one of the greatest ways to measure any major decision in your life or situation is to ask yourself, would God's word speak to me directly about this? Finally, I would say this. God will never lead a person to do anything that is contrary to his word. God will never lead you to disobey his word. The clear teachings of his word. Spiritual pride puts self over scripture. Secondly, spiritual pride puts self over over source. Look at verse 7. Look what Paul says. For who sees anything different in you? Now, sometimes the Greek is translated quite easily, and sometimes there's a struggle. I like the way the New International Version translates this. That's the uh, version of the Bible I grew up reading as a young man and a teenager. It says, for who makes you different from anyone else? One Greek scholar who's far more astute in translating the Greek than I am said you could say it this way. (laughs) Who in the world do you think you are? Now, that registers, right? 
We get it then, right? I don't know about you, but if you've ever found yourself in a position where you're being prideful and someone check you, give you an attitude check, and they go, listen, man, who do you think you are? That stings. At times we don't want to hear it, but most of the time, I know in my life, I need to hear that from people. This is what Paul says. He said, what makes you any different? Who are you to run around saying you have a direct line to God that's not available to others and that you have some sort of spiritual superiority. The second and third phrases of verse 7 just lap on to the meaning. Look what he says in verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You ever had a child come to you and say, we have money, don't we, daddy? Mm-mm. We don't have anything. Me and your mother may have a bank account. You don't have nothing. And that's not even grammatically correct. You don't have anything. You're baroque. There's no we in this. There's us, and most of the time, you're the enemy. In all honesty, though, what we try to teach our children And what we remind ourselves is, even the greatest accomplishments of your life spiritually, what would be number one? Well, it would be being saved. That didn't happen if somebody didn't give you the gospel. And the gospel wasn't theirs to give if someone didn't give it to them. And the gospel wasn't theirs to give if a Savior didn't die. You may say, well, I've accomplished a lot in my life. Well, who put the air in your lungs? the brain matter in your head that gave you the cognitive ability to do what you do. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, there's just no room in the gospel for you to become prideful about your state because even what you do have, the Corinthians did have the love of Christ. They did have spiritual gifts. They had experienced the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. They'd been given the words of the apostles. They'd been given the power of prayer and unity. And so Paul wasn't saying they were lacking. He was just saying, what you do have that you're tending to brag about and divide yourself over, you didn't make that stuff up. It was given to you, which is why he closes verse 7 with this phrase. He says in verse 7 at the conclusion of it, he says these words, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Stop acting like you made this stuff up. Stop acting like spiritual wisdom lives in you, self over source. Finally, spiritual pride pride places self over sacrifice. You know, the opposite of selfishness is selflessness. The opposite of selfishness is selflessness. In activity, it goes something like this, selfishness takes wants, holds, possesses, uses, enjoys, manipulates. Selflessness selflessness gives, offers, serves, helps, lays down, submits, surrenders, cares. And so notice the contrast beginning to develop in verse 8. Paul's saying, here's your attitude. Already, you have all you want. He's being facetious. He's saying, you run around going, we have everything we could ever desire in Christ, and we feel sorry that you don't have what we have. 
Already you act like you've been bloated spiritually. And then he goes on to say, already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. They're ruling their lives using the gospel as their power. And you know what Paul then says? And by the way, I wish you had become kings because that means I would be reigning with you. Last phrase of verse 8. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule of you. What is the opposite of having? It's giving. What is the opposite of ruling? It's following. Now, don't misunderstand. This teaching does not contradict that all the spiritual blessings we could ever need are in Christ. But that doesn't mean I possess everything I need today. I need His grace tomorrow. I don't have all the answers to this life. His Word does. His wisdom does. But they don't live within me. I am not self-sufficient. One of my heroes of the faith says it this way, my bucket leaks. I wake up every day with the enemy sitting on my face. Every day, though I don't have to be resaved every day, every day I have to remind myself the Lord's on his throne regardless of whether or not I feel it today and I choose to obey out of faith and not feeling. Some days it's as if the angels of heaven are singing over our lives and things are going well. And other days, like we had this week, the world, the bubble, the security, the purity, and the beauty of a tiny little elementary school on the second to last day. Two days later, it would have been empty. All of a sudden, everything that we hold dear is threatened, and we ask ourselves, what in the world is going on? Let me tell you something. Spiritually prideful people can't deal with stuff like that. But those who are spiritually powerful can. If spiritual pride is rooted in self, spiritual power is rooted in sacrifice. Notice what happens in the passage after Paul deals with them rather facetiously. Look what he says about his own lot. In verse 9, he begins to talk about himself and the apostles around him. You know those men that they had divided themselves over? 4, verse 9 begins, I think that God has exhibited us apostles, Paul's talking about himself and others, as last of all. Now remember, what does pride want to be? First. Paul says, no, no, no. He made us last like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. In the Roman world, the world that Paul is dealing with, when prisoners were sentenced to death, when prisoners of war were brought into the arena of Rome and the gladiators had their way with them, they often were marched at the very end of the parade. They were last sentenced to death. And everybody looked upon their death. It's not that long ago that even in this country, especially in the Wild West, executions were public. They happened at the street square and towns would fill up when there was going to be a hanging. Those that were guilty, those that were going to be executed had become spectacles to be watched. And people fascinated with the tragedy of execution would look on. They'd become spectacles. And Paul says, that's really what we've become. You, you all want to be celebrities. Paul says, I've become a 
spectacle. And watch what happens beginning in verse 10. He begins to contrast. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. So when you begin to see spiritual power compared to spiritual pride, the word sacrifice emerges. Paul says there's this call to sacrifice. Verse 9, he says, I think God has called us to give our lives, not to keep them. Now, this lines up perfectly with what he's been saying through the whole book in the 18th verse of chapter 1. You make it turn there if you have a Bible as I do in my hand. In chapter 1, verse 18, he says these words, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The irony of that statement is that Paul is saying the message of Jesus dying looks foolish to the world. The, fool, the world wants kings that don't die. But Christianity bows at the feet of a king who did die. And then not only did he die and, of course, overcame death with his resurrection, he calls us to die to self. As I said a few moments ago, the most famous verse in the book of Romans, offer yourselves as living sacrifice. Your life doesn't belong to yourself. It now belongs to the Lord. In fact, this was the characteristic of Paul's ministry. A few weeks ago, we preached in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Paul's saying, I wasn't prideful. I wasn't puffed up. I wasn't asking you to follow my ability to wax eloquently. When I came to you, here's what I did. Chapter 2, verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's not that he lived. It's that he died. His death matters. One of the common denominators of liberal theology, of progressive Christianity, is that they want to admire the example of Jesus and belittle the death of Jesus. I love the example of Jesus. I'm grateful for his perfect sinless life. So thankful for his example. I'm thankful that I can read about his life if I want to know what it looks like to live a life of sinlessness. But he came not to live, but to die. Because his sinlessness prepared him to die for my sinfulness. And if you have a low view of the death of Jesus... Your next step is to have a low view of sin and look what liberal progressive Christianity is celebrating. Many of those same churches next month will have services in their churches under the flag of Christianity celebrating all types of sexual sin. And by the way, what do they call the month? Pride. Pride. The scripture is crystal clear that all we have is a Savior who died for our sins and rose again. And there is no grounds in the gospel to ever celebrate any sin. But when you put self over Scripture, you ought to name the month pride because that's exactly what you're doing. The scripture goes on to tell us that the call of sacrifice 
is then followed by the contrast of sacrifice. Look at verse 10. The Bible says these words in verse 10. Paul says, we are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. (laughs) Paul says, you're running around talking about how smart you are, and people are calling me a fool. Then he goes on to say, we are weak, but you say you're strong. You are strong. You are held in honor, but we are in disrepute. To the present hour, now that's a contrast to the words a few moments ago, already you are rich. Already you have all you want. Paul said, no, 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 there's no already to this. Today. Today, as Paul's writing this, when Paul wrote this in the first century, today, Paul says, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. Now, we have to be careful here. I don't believe the Scripture would indicate that Christians should go run to suffering in the name of proving their faith. Remember what Jesus said about persecution in Matthew chapter 5? Jesus said these words, blessed are those who are persecuted That's not where it stopped. For righteousness' sake. Not people who try to suffer to pay for their sins. Can't do that. It's already been done. Not people who reject comfort, joy, peace, blessings in order to somehow prove their love for God is greater than others. My friends, that would be another form of pride. Jesus said there are going to be some people who do what's right and it causes them to suffer. You might find in your life right now that you are doing what is right by your family to the best that you can see. There's no rebellious sin in your life, and you're not being persecuted for doing what is right. Well, praise God for that. Thank God that he's given you this season of favor, but don't live your life believing he owes you that, that that's always going to be the case. I don't think it will be before my preaching career is over. I think some of the things I just preached very clearly will be quantified as hate language by those who would want to persecute the church. Though our church and any church with a Bible can never promote the harm, the hate, or the hurt of any person, regardless of whatever choice they may choose to make with their life. Simply calling sin, sin, eventually will be persecuted in this country. And when that happens, don't act surprised. Don't believe the Lord has left us, for he said to his first followers, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so Paul says, Corinthians, you're puffed up. You're acting wealthy and rich, but listen to me. I'm over here. I'm the apostle you say superior, or at least some of you. (laughs) I'm homeless. I've been in and out of jail. I've been beaten. I've been shipwrecked. Even now, people are against me. Here I am. There's no basis for pride. And then that leads finally to the commitment of sacrifice. I love how Paul ends this passage. He ends where I'll end. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst, verse 11. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. Now, listen to what Paul says he does. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. 
Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43? You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now notice it wasn't written, it was just said. Jesus is not quoting scripture, he's quoting what religiously prideful people are saying. He said, you heard it said that? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We know Jesus did this because Peter, at the end of his life, you know, Peter who started out wanting to go after the enemies of Jesus, said when he was reviled, Peter's talking about Jesus, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Everybody has to have a theology of suffering. If you didn't think about suffering much last week, you thought about it this week. What does God do with suffering? Well, we could spend hours, days, weeks. But for you to frame up a biblical worldview, remember this. God uses our suffering in our life that we might comfort others who are suffering. God also displays his power in suffering. It takes no faith to follow a God who only delivers pleasure. God also reminds us that the current suffering will be overwhelmed by his coming glory. And finally, suffering is what he uses to perfect our faith. It doesn't take a lot of faith to live blessed all the time. It takes faith when you feel as though you're living in a curse. This is why Paul was able to say these words to the Corinthian believers a few years later. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, well, that's when I'm strong. Battle pride and seek his power. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the opportunity to walk through this text. Thank you for the presence of your teaching within every heart under my voice this morning. There is the potential to possess and practice spiritual pride. And yet due to your great grace, there is potential to be people of spiritual power. Our world needs spiritually powerful men and women of God. We know that all the power belongs to you, but you are not a stingy God. You give us access to your power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. You bestow upon us through your spirit and your word and the power of your church confessing the testimony of the resurrection and the second coming together, there is power available in our lives, power to overcome sin, power to turn from sin when we fall, power to love our enemies, power to believe and trust. And the enemy of this power, the thing that would cause this power to become neutral in our lives is pride. And so Lord, help us to be a people who battle pride and seek power. I'm going to pray, and when I say amen, we're going to stand and 
sing this precious chorus that you will know. And as we do, if you would like more spiritual power in your life, if you want to pray with someone about any stronghold, any difficult issue, any issue where you want the Lord to move, friend, I want you to know some of the most precious, most spiritually powerful, most authentically humble people I've ever met are in our prayer room today, and it's in the center of our concourse. They would love for you to step in for a few moments and pray with them. If I've not had the privilege of meeting you, I'd love to do that as well. I'll be out there. But I'm going to pray, and when I say amen, we're going to stand, we're going to sing. We're going to say goodbye to two young men that we love and encourage. I'll tell you what that means in just a moment. But as we worship, echo this prayer in your heart. Lord, help me to battle pride and give me the courage to seek power. Help me to kill self and to long for sacrifice. Father, you move now as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen.